0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Deaths from drinking too much are up in Colorado, and the numbers don't even tell the full story.
1: It doesn't account for alcohol as a contributor to multiple cancers, to some types of dementia, to certain heart conditions.
0: Denver Post health reporter Meg Wingeter shares her series Colorado's Quiet Killer. Why increasingly young people and women are getting liver transplants.
1: Women are drinking more than we did in previous generations.
0: Then the remarkable story
2: of a skier from Winter Park, Trevor Kennison. Of all the things that Trevor did in the film, and he does some pretty scary things in a sit-ski. I think that the bravest thing he did on camera was opening up to what life with spinal cord injury is like.
1: This election season, CPR will be a go-to destination for fact-based, insightful national and local coverage online and on the radio. Through sponsorship, your
3: business can help fund the ongoing effort to bring trustworthy news and information to all of Colorado. And because CPR does not accept political advertising, we can deliver an uncluttered, unbiased platform for your message. Don't get lost in the crowd. Stand out and make an impact. Learn about sponsoring CPR at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Booze is everywhere in Colorado. The beer at a Broncos game, a glass of wine at dinner, the distillery around the corner. It all adds up, and our state ranks sixth in alcohol-related deaths, which are up 50% since the pandemic. Increasingly, young people and women are affected. It's the subject of Colorado's Quiet Killer, a series from the Denver Post and health reporter there, Meg Wingoder. Thanks so much for being with us, Meg.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I have to say that this series really hit home for me. I lost a good friend in Denver to alcoholism. I'm sorry. Thank you for that. And you spoke with several people whose loved ones died of alcohol-related illnesses. Is there a particular story that sticks with you? Or maybe it's that there's something these folks have in common.
1: One thing that struck me was the number of people who said their loved ones were basically functioning up until the point that they discovered they were in liver failure. You know, there's this kind of stereotype that a person with an alcohol use disorder is sitting on the street drinking whiskey out of a paper bag, but these were people who were holding down jobs, in some cases taking care of kids, and yet their health was failing because... Of drinking
0: they learn about liver failure somewhat by surprise
1: at some point yeah unfortunately for most people unless you're getting regular tests of your liver function you don't find out until it's very damaged when people would wake up and suddenly discover that they were very jaundiced unfortunately it can be a very silent killer
0: my goodness well let's put just a couple more numbers to this The state of Colorado says there were 1,547 alcohol-related deaths here in 2022, so more than 1,500. Yes. But other experts say that's really just the tip of the iceberg, right? Help us
1: understand that. It is. What is included in the state's numbers, it's a few types of organ failure and certain... um, psychiatric disorders, like if someone dies while in withdrawal or develops psychosis because of alcohol use, it doesn't account for alcohol as a contributor to multiple cancers, to some types of dementia, to certain heart conditions. So when you include people who had a condition that is not solely caused by alcohol in the way that the ones they count are, but. Yeah, where I mean, alcohol with dementia,
0: is, for instance, mm-hmm. right? That would be something underlying, but exacerbated then by the alcohol use?
1: There are certain forms that truly are caused by the effects of alcohol on the brain, but yeah, some of the more common types of dementia, alcohol is a risk factor there. The same with breast cancer, for example. A lot of things contribute to breast cancer, but. Alcohol use is one of them, but you never see on someone's death certificate that she died of breast cancer that was caused by alcohol. So.
0: I think that that is what is so remarkable about this series is alcohol, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, is a daily part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think much about the deep health consequences. Like, I don't think there's a lot of knowledge in the general populace about alcohol. And cancer, Meg, was some of this illuminating for you, too?
1: It was surprising for me. You know, I knew some of the better known things, the association with alcohol and accidents, alcohol and liver disease. But the number of cancers and other conditions it contributes to, it's not something I learned in school. You know, it does make you think about it a little differently when you're going to have a drink. I'm not going to tell people. They shouldn't drink at all, but I think it's something we need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, do so mindfully. Yeah. You're not here to be a wet blanket. (laughs) Uh This is still primarily an issue for people in late middle age, Mm -hmm. but one alarming trend you've identified is an increase in liver transplants among women and younger people. What's going on there?
1: One major factor is that women are drinking more than we did in previous generations. And unfortunately, because of some biological differences, a woman is going to run into health problems at the same level of drinking that might be okay for a man. Our our risks are just higher.
0: Did you get any clarity on why women are drinking more than they used to?
1: I've heard some theories, some social changes that it's no. become more acceptable. Everybody's seen the wine mom memes, and also that there are more options to drink. You've got seltzers, hard sodas, all sorts of options. So,
0: I mean, it really does occur to me that the beverage industry, the adult beverage industry, has really branched out in terms of its appeal to different demographics, mm-hmm.
1: huh? Yeah, it amazed me. One time I was at a liquor store and they were selling pre-mixed Sunny D with alcohol in it, which I know people sometimes like to do that themselves, but it was just a little surprising to see these things that I think of as kids' products being sold with alcohol in them.
0: Because when I was a kid, Sunny D, the ads were always like, you know, kids drinking it Mm -hmm. as provided by their soccer mom or something Yes. Okay, and let's speak to the trend involving younger people getting liver transplants. That surprised me, I've got to be honest.
1: Yeah, it is surprising. And I haven't heard one clear answer to why that is. I mean, interestingly, there are more non-drinkers in Generation Z now than there were in my generation, the Millennials, or or Generation X. So the question is, is, are those who drink just drinking that much more? and that excess, yeah. And that's pushing them into liver failure at earlier ages? Or could there be some other complicating factors, you know, like obesity is also a risk factor for liver disease. So if people are experiencing both of those things, obesity and excessive alcohol use, is that pushing them further? But I don't know that there's any research that's nailed that down.
0: A lot of the experts you talked to said COVID really stoked this trend in over-drinking, the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but that it hasn't really slowed down as much as expected with the pandemic easing. Did we just develop bad habits?
1: Short answer, I suppose, would be yes. Some of the experts I talked to said they have observed this when people increase their drinking after a stressful event, you know, after 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina, that they tend to stay at that higher level. They've created
0: Um, a new normal
1: for themselves in terms of consumption. Yeah. For some people, it gets to the point that they have an alcohol use disorder and they can't easily stop without professional help. But for others, it's, yeah, maybe you had one drink, you know, in the evening and you've gotten used to having three or four. And as you develop tolerance, that just kind of becomes normal.
0: There is a scene early in the pandemic that I will never forget. I have a feeling you know what I'm about to Mm -hmm. say. That moment where it looked like liquor stores in Denver were going to be closed and people... It was kind of a panic, don't you think? Yes, Mag-
1: I remember that.
0: And there were lines. And then I think the mayor kind of reversed course because he was afraid that with the mad dash to the liquor stores, that actually might be more dangerous than keeping them open and having people go in in a more meted fashion.
1: Yeah. There were public health reasons for keeping liquor stores open in that situation. You know, if someone has an alcohol addiction and they stop... Drinking suddenly that can be very dangerous, putting mm. them into withdrawal. Mm. Um, and since at that time everybody was worried about the hospitals being overrun, there was a case to be made for maybe now is not the time to force those people to give up.
0: Kind of drinking cold turkey, right? Yeah. yeah,
1: but I I do remember how striking it was that people. Seem to not want to go through this without a very well stocked bar. Yeah. So
0: So we mentioned Colorado ranks sixth in the country in alcohol related deaths. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about why that might be? What's the special sauce?
1: Well, the simplest thing is we drink a lot, (laughs) and that translates into more people. Dying of these conditions um, caused by alcohol, but it does
0: feel like a part of the identity here, doesn't it? I mean, it
1: does. And I
0: the breweries, the microbreweries,
1: definitely. And I would love to have a clear answer on what it is about the Mountain West that this seems to be part of our identity, because it, it's not just Colorado. There are other states in this region that have very high rates of consumption and deaths. Wyoming
0: but, is among them, mm-hmm. which borders us, yeah.
1: Yes. There is definitely something in the, in the culture and a contributing factor. We have very low alcohol taxes, which, you know, taxes can kind of nudge people a bit as alcohol gets more expensive. Maybe they don't quit entirely. Maybe they still drink heavily, but they moderate it. A little bit, because that's what their budgets demand. And
0: there's always that talk about, like, the rugged individualism of the Mountain West, Mm -hmm. you know, and whether people are turning to a bottle instead of a therapist because, you know, you don't want to have to lean on other people. It's all a bit diffuse, but uh, there's something there, I think.
1: Yeah, there's the rugged individualism culture and also... In Colorado, people have an idea. They come here for a certain lifestyle. We all love to be in the outdoors, hiking, skiing, whatever. And it's become part of that that afterwards you hit the bar or maybe even bring your beer with you to enjoy out in nature. And in moderation, that can be okay, but it can also easily go too far.
0: But it's true that it's woven into to some extent, civic life here. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. of a friend of mine who did a really healthy thing. He ran a marathon. And then guess what was served at the end of the marathon?
1: Booze! I'm surprised people can do that and keep it down. <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it it is a little strange to see how people have these very healthy lifestyles in some way, but also alcohol, which I... You know, as we mentioned, I think people don't necessarily perceive as not being part of the healthy lifestyle.
0: I will say that, as Colorado debated legal cannabis, the argument we heard a lot was it's so much safer than alcohol. People die from alcohol far more than they do from marijuana. So I feel like there's some awareness of that in maybe in contrast. And Meg, it's fascinating because you draw contrasts between how the state, handles its fentanyl epidemic mm-hmm. and its alcohol problem. What stands out when you kind of compare those?
1: Well, even at that strictest definition we talked about, where it's just a few types of organ failure and such, the numbers are pretty comparable. Until 2022, there were actually more people dying of alcohol-related causes than overdoses. And when you include that broader definition there are still far more people dying from alcohol and
0: it dwarfs the fentanyl problem to some extent
1: yeah i mean of course the odds an average illicit fentanyl user is going to die are significantly higher than the odds that an average person who drinks will die but what struck me is that they're just not even talked about as being remotely comparable when i called some legislators and people in authority they were very surprised to hear that the number of people who are dying of alcohol related causes there's just not the same urgency around reducing that that there is around stopping overdoses
0: it is fascinating because fentanyl was this um and justifiably so. It was this boogeyman, right? Mm-hmm. And there were there were yeah. all kinds of conversations in the legislature about this. And yet, this other substance that has pretty marketing and labels and corporate support, which is actually deadlier, is treated... I mean, we talk about it in almost endearing ways. Um permissive ways. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's socially acceptable. Um, You know, I think of all the recreational drugs people like to take. Alcohol is probably the only one that's going to be allowed at your company Christmas party. Um, (laughs) You know, it's
0: there uh, was was not cocaine at my last (laughs) Christmas party. Mine either. Are there any efforts to address this now that you've brought these numbers to some folks' attention?
1: I've heard some discussion of trying to um regulate how alcohol is displayed in in grocery stores and other places.
0: As an anecdote, at a King Super's in my neighborhood, the health food section, like where you would get spelt, <laughs> you know, and kombucha, mm-hmm. is now all wine.
1: Well, that is that yeah. does kind of put a point on things. Um, yeah,
0: so yeah. it's it's much more prominent, we should say, in grocery stores, but go on.
1: Yeah. You know, there's some discussion of whether there could be limits on the amount of space devoted to those or whether they could require kind of a separate area. So you're not seeing the uh, the wine as you're picking up your produce. I don't know what the odds are of that happening, but it's something that people are discussing.
0: And are there conversations about raising the, the tax?
1: I have not heard that. I mean, here with Tabor, it's so complicated to raise taxes. So not that I know of. What
0: novel approaches outside of government regulation have you found to prevention, treatment?
1: Well, on the treatment side, it's not necessarily novel, but that people don't necessarily know about is that there are medications that can be very effective for alcohol use disorder. Unfortunately, only a small percentage of people who would possibly benefit from them are getting them. Hmm. So there are some efforts to get that to more people who could use it. On the prevention side, a lot of what I've heard is trying to give people alternatives.
0: Um, Kind of dry, sober events or sober sections of
1: events. Yes. Last June, I went to a uh, Pride event that was completely uh, sober. they had a mocktail truck and a DJ and people were dancing, having a good time um, without any alcohol, no pressure to use it or even if you're early in recovery and you don't feel comfortable being around alcohol you could still enjoy most aspects of pride without feeling that you might be putting yourself in at risk. I've so. seen
0: this as well at some sporting events where mm-hmm. they'll section off an area. I, I'm so glad you mentioned pride, because just I want to say, like as a gay person, we are constantly marketed to by alcohol companies. I think this is true for any human being, but it, it is fascinating to me how often something is sponsored by a vodka or sponsored by a beer mm-hmm. in the gay community, which has its issues and may turn disproportionately to alcohol to numb oneself. Let's talk about this idea of drinking as a habit
1: mm-hmm.
0: because it is so hard socially sometimes, to be a non-drinker, don't you think?:
1: Yeah, it can be. Um, depending on, you know, your friend group, there may be direct pressure, but there's also kind of that indirect element of if you're an adult, there are just not many things to do that don't involve alcohol. Yeah. Even if you there was used to be a indoor mini golf place and I felt fine going there. If I didn't want to drink, I didn't have to have one, but if you're someone who's feeling like you need to avoid alcohol for your health and you see that full bar right next to all the putters, that you know, that can be a little challenging.
0: Yeah, and you can even kind of get a hard time from the people in your life who drink when you don't. Yeah. Did you learn about the questions someone should ask themselves before we go, Meg, if they think they have a problem? I also wonder if it made you rethink your own drinking, assuming you do drink.
1: Yeah, I like to have a glass of wine occasionally, maybe once or twice a week. If you're thinking about long-term health The guideline is pretty simple for women no more than one drink a day, for men no more than two. It doesn't specify what trans people should do. The guidelines aren't really set up like that, so I'm not sure what to tell them. If you're thinking in terms of whether you might have an alcohol use disorder, there's a list of criteria. Do you end up drinking more than you wanted to or find it hard to stop? Mm -hmm. Has this caused problems in your relationships or your ability to do your job? You know, do you ever find yourself drinking to the point that you black out or maybe you do things you did not intend to do? Those kinds of questions.
0: And we'll have a link to your series as well. Thank you. At CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for sharing the reporting with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Meg Wingeter is health reporter at The Denver Post. Her recent series is Colorado's Quiet Killer How the state funds schools hasn't changed in 30 years. A task force wants to overhaul the formula and bring money to cash starved schools. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brendine.
3: State lawmakers charged the bipartisan task force with developing a new formula. The final report details a new way to calculate how much money each school district should get. Brenda DeConer is president and CEO of Ready Colorado, a conservative education reform group and member of the task force. The proposed formula is simple, equitable, and focused on what should be our top priority, which is students. The task force was made up of a diverse group of educators, advocates, and school finance experts. They had a tall order. The school finance formula is incredibly complicated. Lisa Weil of the nonprofit group Great Education Colorado says the current formula puts a lot of emphasis on the size of a district or its cost of living. The new proposal instead puts more weight or money into student characteristics. Task Force Chair Chuck Carpenter
0: we know that the students that are least likely to succeed and do well in school
2: are those that are in poverty or learning english or have special needs and so To put an emphasis on, on putting our money where our needs are, I think, is what this new formula does. It also
3: prioritizes lower property wealth districts and small rural districts. But the task force says to make the formula work, schools will need another $474 million. That's because over the past 14 years, lawmakers have diverted $10 billion from public schools to balance the state budget. Moreover, schools and students have changed dramatically since the school funding formula of 1994. Leslie Nichols is the superintendent of the Gunnison Watershed School District. It's not just a single teacher with 30 kids anymore. It's it's a team of adults supporting all of our students. That's because student needs and academic expectations are much higher now. Schools must meet mental health and nutrition needs and pay to make schools safe. And the science of how children learn has advanced dramatically. Teachers can pinpoint where a child is struggling in reading. We can do that when we're funded better and have the professionals with the expertise brought to our students. In our school. The new report also asks lawmakers to incorporate results from what will be Colorado's first ever study on how much it actually costs to educate children here. Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
0: Back in just a bit, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: For years, Colorado leaders fought to keep Space Command headquarters in Colorado Springs. So we enlisted our friends, our allies,
2: folks that understand space issues deeply.
3: In this latest episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish, we pull back the curtain on Colorado's fight for Space Command, the bipartisan cooperation and lobbying it took to reverse a presidential decision to send the command to Alabama, and why any victory dance may be premature. Purplish, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not just another ski film. Full Circle, a story of post-traumatic growth, follows an adaptive skier from Winter Park working his way back to the place where he broke his back on Vail Pass. Our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, spoke with him and with the
4: Denver filmmaker. Around 300,000 Americans are living with a spinal cord injury. That's according to numbers from the National Spinal Cord Injury Statistical Center. Trevor Kennison is one of them. He broke his back snowboarding at Vail Pass in 2014. He's now a sit skier, the adaptive version of winter downhill sports, and he's a pretty prolific one at that. The documentary, Full Circle, follows his experience, setting it in the context with the decades-old legacy of American disability advocacy, He joins me now from Winter Park, along with Josh Berman, the film's director, who is in Washington, D.C. Trevor and Josh, welcome.
2: Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
4: Trevor, I want to start with you. I think we're all familiar with stories of people overcoming odds and accomplishing something impressive. And while you certainly did that, it also feels a little reductive to say that that's all there is to this movie, It's a documentary that touches on themes of what it means to have a spinal cord injury, sort of the friction of not wanting to be identified that, but also very much having it be a part of who you are. I guess when this project got started, did you intend for it to become the deeper exploration that it did? No, I did not. The
5: only thing I intended to do was go back to Vail Pass and pull backflip where
4: I broke my back. And that's basically how this whole movie and project started. Josh, how did that evolution take place? I guess this film has a couple different audiences. There's the ski film audience who might just want to see Trevor do a double backflip on a sit ski, but it also feels like there was an effort to speak directly to the disabled community. Was that intentional?
2: Ultimately, it was. Like Trevor said, he came to me with a short film idea of just going back to the site of his accident. And I mean, that itself is a very compelling story, and he had me hooked from the very beginning. But as soon as I started spending time with Trevor, it became immediately apparent that he deserved more of a story. And I didn't quite know what that was. But I think one of the things that, that we portray in the film is just the energy and the charisma that, that Trevor has. That He's really a special person. People want to spend time around him. And you know, I was, I was one of those people immediately. So I didn't know what the story would be. I just knew that there was something else there. And then it wasn't until a few months after Trevor and I started working on what was going to be a slightly bigger project telling his story that we found out about Barry Corbett and his history and the foundation that he built for the disability community and people like Trevor. And that really turned the project upside down and uh, changed the scope pretty significantly.
4: While we're on the subject of Barry Corbett, he's obviously a name that is big in the skiing world, but also in the spinal cord injury world, which you touched on a little bit there. Can you sort of tell us about him and how he fits into this?
2: So Barry Corbett in the 50s and the 60s was a prolific explorer and adventurer and mountain climber. I mean, really a world-class athlete. He was the first to some of the two highest peaks in Antarctica. He was on the first U.S. expedition to the top of Everest. He was also a filmmaker. And in May of 1968, He was shooting a project outside of Aspen out of a helicopter and the pilot misjudged his elevation above the ground and the helicopter crashed and Barry barely survived the crash and was left with a very similar injury to Trevor, a T-11, T-12 fracture of his spinal cord, I believe. And he lost the use of his legs and spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair and being who he was. I mean, this is pre ADA world where there was not a lot of support. There was not a lot of understanding of what was possible and really Barry wasn't willing to accept the hand that he was dealt. And he helped redefine how people looked at disability. He became an advocate. He was a writer and wrote books and was an editor of New Mobility Magazine and built community around the spinal cord injury community and the greater disability community and really helped redefine what disability meant and what life with disability was all about.
4: Trevor, I'm curious, now that you've seen the documentary, having gone through this process, what did you learn from that juxtaposition that this film is based on between your own experience and sort of that history of barry corbett there's so many
5: overlapping things that we did but and it's so ironic how we never or i never knew the story or anything like that and uh you know how josh weaved it was super super amazing yeah i mean there is a lot of degrees you know just like you know pioneering and doing this stuff uh in kayaking and you know with the same thing i'm doing in sit skiing and uh, you know, helping people with disabilities across country, across the world, you know, in just a little bit different ways. So it's, it's really, really cool.
2: To, to jump in, Tom, and, and add to that a little bit. In, in telling Trevor's story, what what makes his story so compelling, I think, is that he was able to find reinvention post-injury really pushing the limits of adaptive sports and, and extreme sports. And, you know, his, his story is incredible, but we wanted to make sure we're communicating to the audience that we're not just defining success and reinvention post-injury simply through athletics and, and pushing sport. And where Barry's story really comes in, I mean, he, he began his life as a world-class athlete, and ultimately he wasn't able to really return to the sports that he loved. But He found reinvention as a writer and building community and, and found fulfillment in so many different ways. And we actually quote his daughter in the film, you know, one of her lines is something to the effect of Barry considered the second half of his life post injury as the more important part of his life. So it was really important for us to juxtapose these two stories and, and show that, you know, there's fulfillment and, and success, and it wasn't necessarily just defined by sport and performance. Yeah. And then also,
5: you know, like with me going to the bathroom on camera, talking about all that kind of stuff, no one's done that. And, you know, it's going to help so many people in so many different ways. We're all human. And that's what just like normalizes it so much.
4: I'm glad you brought that up, Trevor, because I was was fascinated by a number of the contrasts in this film. And one of the ones that really stood out was in those places where uh, the subject matter can get a little raw, so to speak. I mean, on the one hand... We have your growth in sit skiing, where you're building towards more aggressive goals. And with that comes you take quite a beating at the rail yard in Winter Park it looks like. And at the same yep. time, <laughs> at the same time, the film's equally unflinching about showing the more unglamorous part of life and how that's changed post injury for you. why why was it important to embrace both of those aspects with such clarity?
5: Because people don't know, and they just, literally I say in the film, and people are say, oh, I'm sorry, but they have no clue why they're saying sorry. Um, yeah, so and I wanted to be real as possible.
4: I guess, can you tell me how it's different speaking to another person who's maybe experienced a spinal cord injury or another life-altering injury like that? As opposed to speaking someone, well, frankly, to somebody like me. Yeah, I mean,
5: I guess it's just unknown, you know? So compared to speaking with, like, a friend or someone that has a spinal cord injury, you know, you get how you go to the bathroom, peeing or pooping, and, you know, you just get those small little things that other people wouldn't. So it's it's really cool in the sense that this movie can show just able-bodied people that we are human, you can treat us the same as just anyone else give us give us crap and um don't treat us differently like that
4: josh as you were putting the film together and kind of coming up with the concepts to explore in this what what was that experience like for you kind of pairing those those experiences together
2: of all the things that trevor did in the film and and he does some unbelievable uh, pretty scary things in Sitsky. I think that the bravest thing he did on camera was letting us into his life and letting us spend time with him in his, in his apartment and really opening up um, to what life with spinal cord injury is like. And, you know, that really came from him. It was, it was Trevor's idea and Trevor's motivation to paint a, a full, well-rounded picture of what his life was like. And it's something that I think is so valuable to, to the film to, you know, sharing with the viewer and with the audience, all the things that they wouldn't otherwise know and presenting it in a way that I think is educational and informative, but not clinical. I think, you know, through Trevor's personality and through the way he's willing to put himself out there, it, it makes it somewhat approachable and interesting in in an unflinching way.
5: Yeah, no, and, and without a doubt, Berman, as you said, I think with how you guys put it together, too. Yeah, me putting it out there, but how you guys put it together and pieced it together.
4: Like you said, it wasn't clinical. It was like really, I don't know, it was like really neat how you guys pieced it together. A number of different people are interviewed in this film. One that stood out to me was W. Mitchell, who was mayor of Crested Butte at one point. And you had this clip of him speaking back in the 80s.
5: I like to think that uh, before I was paralyzed, there were 10,000 things I could do. And now there's uh, 9,000. So I can either dwell on the 1,000 that I've lost or I can concentrate on the 9,000 that's left. And, of course, the joke is that none of us in our lifetime are going to do more than two or 3,000 of those things in in any event.
4: Trevor, do you remember something that was maybe said to you early on or something that you read early on in your journey that kind of stuck with you as you progressed?
5: Oh, man. I guess, like, in the hospital, a doctor saying, like, oh, you'll never be able to walk or anything or do anything like that or like have movement. And I guess for me, it was kind of just like, okay, that sucks, but we're going to give it our all, you know? And I don't know. I think the injury itself, I feel like it sticks with everyone in the sense of like, if you don't learn how to do these things, then you're going to just be stuck. And in the sense of like, trying to like learn how to transfer as fast as possible, learn how to drive my car. You know, all these things that, I drove my car out of the hospital after like five, five, six weeks in the hospital. Drove it. Which nobody does, by the way, just for reference. Yeah. Nobody else does that. <laughs> just- and I lived, yeah, and then I lived in a hotel for five days because the doors were too small. So I just moved in this apartment for like a month before I got hurt. And then I found a place. But yeah, it was like, I think like being in the hospital, what stuck with me, The most is you can either sit there and just feel bad for yourself and, or you can get up and attack it and get stuff done and, and do it. And like I said, no, one's going to do it for you. You have to do it on your own. And I think I took that to like the fullest, fullest for life and sports and just in general.
4: Well, something I thought was powerful from the film is. You and other people quoted in the film were pretty honest about it's not a linear trajectory out of out of the hospital. It's not like, OK, I decided to to turn it all around and it was great from there. Yeah. It, it ebbs and flows and there's ups and downs. Why was it important to show that it's not a straight line?
5: Because we're all human. And I believe everyone deals with mental health issues and or physical stuff that you might not be able to see. And that's like, you know, the same thing going back to showing someone in a wheelchair. That's fine. But like, throw the whole thing of like, you can't see the undercoding of what really goes on. So I just think that's important just to, you know, show uh, that we're all human.
4: What do you remember about your first time sit skiing? Um, I remember
5: I was really bad at it. And, uh, I was gripping the outriggers like no other, and I just had white knuckles and got to the bottom. Like, can you move my fingers or
4: forearms? (laughs) Maybe for folks who haven't done it before or haven't seen it before, can you give us sort of the, the beginner's guide to what sit skiing is and what it looks like? Yeah, of course, of course.
5: Um, so what sit skiing is this frame, the frame is metal, has a spring and a shock inside the. The frame. Uh, it's a motorcycle shock. And then you put a bucket on top where you sit. And then you have these outriggers called, or they're like, they go in your left and right hand. And they're like little skis. And then that frame attaches into an actual ski. And there's called bioskiing, which has you clip into a ski and it has two skis side by side. Or there's called monoskiing, or I call it sit skiing. And that's where you sit down and have a single ski and clip into that. And it's basically the exact same thing as an able body skis, but you're only using one.
4: The film opens at Corbett's Coolar in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, returning to our theme of Barry Corbett. This clip from the film, I think, kind of gives a sense for the gravity of what you were trying to do, jumping into Corbett's at an annual event there for extreme skiers.
3: This is the icon of Jacksonville Mountain Resort. It's the Everest for a lot of skiers and snowboarders. When you ride the tram, you go up 4,000 vertical feet in 12
1: minutes.
5: You know, you're getting up there, you're getting up there, and then you crest that cliff, and there's a hanging snowfield, and oh, here comes Corbett's, and you go by, and you're looking at it, and it's just like, wow. I mean, it's
4: so nasty. There's massive boulders, super sharp rocks.
5: It's
0: so steep that when you look down, it looks like you're standing on the second floor of a building.
4: Within this death-laden
2: cliff area, there is one route through, and it's Corbett's Couloir. It's for real. Anybody who says that they're a really good skier, you take them up to the lip of Corvus and be like, so do you want to ski this? Almost everybody is like, yeah, no, no, I'm good. I just had never seen the kid before. I didn't really know what the deal was like, oh, they're going to, he's going to come and watch.
5: I just get over to that, where the shovel and
2: then I, I see him talking to some people and, and I'm like, oh no, he, he oh, he's hes competing, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Next thing I know, I'm employed to help push him up the hill. When you saw how far he was getting pushed up before he was going in, it was like, oh, he's, he's, he's really going in.
4: And dropping Corbett's is something that traditional skiers there's a very small percentage of them who can do it and you did it on a sit ski what were some of the challenges of doing it on a sit ski compared to what you usually see from the people jumping into Corbett's
5: I think the biggest challenge was showing up by myself and not having any help yeah I didn't know anyone didn't have any friends or anything like that with me I literally was in Crescent Butte. basically I got the word that day from my friend Greg Heidel And he's like, yeah, you're going to do it. And I was like, oh man, all right, we're going to do it. So I basically drove back to Winter Park. It was a five, six hour drive. And I drove out to Utah, Park City, Utah, to get my, uh, get skis mounted on that Saturday. And then Sunday I got them mounted and drove another five hours to Jackson Hole.
4: And went to the athlete meeting that night, not knowing a single soul. In watching the video of it, there's... It seems like there's a lot of fretting around you of people kind of worried about your safety. Does yep. that does that feel inf I guess does that feel infantilizing? Do you know just not to take it any kind of way at this point? I mean, I don't think they'll ever change being in a wheelchair.
5: I mean, just you just go to a grocery store and people get anxious. <laughs> like it's it's pretty funny in that sense. Yeah. And then even in the Sitski, even more. But I think for me it was more so just having the confidence in you to do it and knowing exactly what I needed to do. I mean, you can hear in the video, I, I, I basically repeat, I'm like, Hey, I need more speed. I need more speed. You know, I ha I made that decision to pull off. No one told me to do that. So yeah. So yeah, I obviously probably made it a little nervous, but that's the thing, you know, just it, I don't know, getting people used to it. And, but yeah, I think having the confidence to do it and like I said, it's never going away. So I think you just have to take it with a grain of salt because some people have just never seen it in their life before and are blown away. <laughs>
4: I was going to say, because obviously in sports and extreme sports and anything, confidence is sort of the name of the game, even when you're not jumping 60 feet out and landing on a pretty steep pitch. I I'm curious what the effect was of trying to block out those people and make sure that their fretting doesn't become your fretting. At that point in my
5: life as a spinal cord injury in in a wheelchair, I would just say honestly I got I guess I got into the contest, right? So for me it was like just making sure like it's okay to ask for help and At that point, like I knew what I needed to do, but in the sense, like with Travis Rice coming up to me, that made the difference in the world because he just gave me more confidence and just like helped me do exactly like my routine and just like what I needed to do to make sure I was successful.
4: Josh, did you ever find yourself maybe worrying about Trevor in a way that you wouldn't with some of the other athletes you've filmed? Or I guess, have you, have you you been a stenographer of, of dangerous ideas long enough that you kind of know to just let the athletes do their thing.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's walking a fine line when you're shooting action that's really pushing the limits or things that have never been done before. And, you know, my background, I made ski films for 20 years, traveled the world with some of the best athletes doing some of the most incredible things and, and capturing it on camera. And what was really awesome about working with Trevor is that everything old was new again and that everything that Trevor had on his list of goals were all things that had never been done. So it was a really fun challenge to work with him to figure out how we could create an environment where Trevor could accomplish his goals. And for all of the you know, wild things that, that he does, I would say that it, it might be a little lost on the viewer that safety really was paramount. I mean, there was, there was nothing that we did that I was really concerned for trevor's life and limb and what we don't see in the film is all the work that's going on behind the scenes to make sure that everything trevor does is actually done as safely as possible and you know i'll point to even even the crash section that's featured in the film i mean it it's some pretty scary stuff um and the vast majority of those crashes were actually just from trevor messing around with his friends in the public park a lot of them in where park actually yeah
5: and and there were and there were some crashes with you berman but don't get don't get it wrong (laughs) uh,
2: no there are definitely a few but i will say that for for all like the really you know high level like most impressive thing you did that we shot um that there were no crashes and you didn't get hurt in any way and uh, you know, I think that that's not only testament to all the work we put on the back end, but to your, your level of commitment and, and athleticism and understanding of what needed to be done to do these things safely.
4: I'll get you out of here on this. Trevor, when you speak with other adaptive athletes or, or maybe just people are kind of at the beginning stages of adjusting to life in a wheelchair, is there something you tell them? Is there something that maybe you wish you'd heard early on that you can pass on to them?
5: Yeah, I would say, honestly, um, I always tell everyone that's new. I don't care what you did before, professional athlete, if you were a plumber like me, just love sports. I just say do everything. Uh, My mentor, Yasmin Bamber, uh, stepped into my life. Uh, I was basically on, I was making $3,000 a month and then I was making $600 from Social Security. Um, And so from that difference for like the six months, um, I was paying out of pocket, like so much money for just medical supplies and I'm uh, lucky I have insurance, but I was still paying out of pocket and then I had to pay $850 in rent. So I met him six months after and, or I met him, yeah, six months after and he helped me out with my medical stuff. Um, and he, he was on the Paralympic ski team. He's been injured for probably like 15 years at the time, I think, or maybe or something like that 20 years, but, uh, he just, he just got done it. And he told me he was like. Do everything you want, dude, whether it's art, whether it's get jobs, like try everything. And that's what I tell everyone. And you might not like skiing after you get hurt again, doing skiing. You know, you got hurt from skiing and you might like something completely different or you might like skiing again. But my recommendation is try all the sports, try going back to school or
4: jobs, anything and um, make sure you have fun doing it. (laughs) Trevor Kennison and Josh Berman, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom.
0: They spoke with our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess. The documentary Full Circle is on Netflix. (music) Thanks for spending time with us and thanks to the Colorado Matters team.
2: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Pete Kramer.
1: Molly Cruz
3: Andrea Dukakis Rachel Estabrook Michelle Fulcher
4: Matt Hers, Tom Hess Michael Hughes Chris Ketchum Pedro Lumbraño Shane Rumsey
3: Chandra Thomas-Woodfield
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News, NKRCC. I am a, I am a cause for some discomfort I am the need for public
3: works.